You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. We'll look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 21. And then I'll pray when I'm done reading. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third are in the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it... You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's have prayer together. Father in heaven, we come together in prayer through our Lord Jesus, the perfect law keeper, and how we are thankful for him. We pray that today as we look at your law and we regard it, that you would strengthen us to walk closely with you, to keep your commandments, and that we would receive your commandments with great joy and rejoicing in our hearts. We pray for those among us today who do not know Christ, And we pray that they would see the great terror of your law and fall under the terrible conviction of sin and throw themselves upon the mercy of the only one who can save them, and that is Jesus. For the backsliders this morning who should have no assurance of pardon, but a dreadful sense of your judgment also, we pray that they would be restored and run to Jesus. For those among us this morning who are falsely converted and are living under the pretense of their false conversion, would you convince them of their false conversion and would they truly be born again? Oh, we pray that Christ would be made much of this morning. 
and that he would be perceived and beheld by us as our great treasure, that you would entreat us to come to Jesus and to find great joy in him, our precious and dear Savior, and that you and our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, would send the Holy Spirit of God, that you would make the preaching of your word effectual within our hearts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's no concept of law in this age in which we find ourselves. The great sin of our age, if it can be summed up in one term, is lawlessness. This is a lawless age. An age that does not know the law and does not obey the law, in fact, scorns the law and high-handed rebellion against God. It's a lawless age. And this generation has been completely given over to folly. If you look at the book of Proverbs, and if you've read it, you'll understand that the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. This is repeated throughout that great book of wisdom penned by the wisest man that ever lived, King Solomon. And as King Solomon wanted to raise a righteous generation of men in his kingdom, he wanted them to know that the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. So where there is no fear of the Lord, you cannot have wisdom and you cannot have knowledge that lasts and that is enduring and practical and useful. And as you read the scriptures, you find that the fear of the Lord is a phrase that is often are regularly equated with the law of the Lord. So that when the fear of the Lord is mentioned, the insinuation is that it is the law of the Lord of, which is, of what is being spoken. So that at times in Scripture, there is a one-to-one -one correlation between the fear of the Lord and the law of the Lord. So that if you come to the book of Proverbs, as you should, and you look for wisdom, you should understand that if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, so is the law of the Lord beginning of wisdom and the law of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that's very appropriate within the context of the Proverbs because the Proverbs is simply fleshing out how the law of the Lord applies to everyday life in the life of a young man in the kingdom of God. And so if you want to have wisdom and you want to have knowledge, you want to see and perceive the world properly, and you want to think critically about the world in the way that your brain was designed to think critically, and you want to live and act appropriately in this world, you need that foundation of God's law. And if you can build on the foundation of God's law, and you can learn to apply it to all aspects of life, then all of a sudden the world will make clear sense to you. The world will be sensical to you. You'll be seeing the world rightly and properly and orderly. And your life will function rightly and properly and orderly. You will go from what is deformed to what is reformed. But we don't live in a reformed age. We live in a deformed age. This is an age that is deformed and needs to be reformed. This generation of ours has been given over to folly. Folly, because they have no fear of God. They don't have the law of God. They don't have the fear of God. It's a generation that has been given over to absolute futility. 
You can imagine how frustrating it would be to, to sit down at the dinner table and all you have before you is a steak and the only utensil you have to eat with is a spoon. Wouldn't that be a frustrating experience? I'm sure you could eventually carve through the steak with a spoon if you really tried, potentially. But that's not what the spoon was intended for. If you want to properly carve through the steak, you ought to have a fork and a steak knife. And we live in an age of futility because people are using what God has given them in a way that God never intended it to be used. So it's a futile age. It's futility. God's given them the tools and they're using them the wrong way. So there's no wonder there's so much mental illness and depression in this era in which we live in. Because people are using their minds and their intellects and their bodies and their hearts in ways that God never intended them to be used. So it is a futile existence for so much of humanity these days. And this is what folks have been given over to. Futility, and depraved desires, manifold deformities, deformities of life. Life itself has become disordered. There's no order to the world in which so many live. It's become deformed. They haven't had proper formation by the fear of the Lord. And so people don't even understand how to think, never mind how to act and how to live, how to build families and function in a healthy way in society and in church and how to have marriages and raise children. They don't have a clue. They're futile existence. It's a futile existence. It's manifold deformities. So that we live in a generation where good is evil, evil is good, right is wrong, wrong is right, boy is girl, girl is boy, beauty is ugly, and ugly is beauty. Thus is the world in which we live. And why? Because of the absence of the fear of the Lord. The absence of the law of the Lord, two of which are equated quite often in Scripture. They're gone. They don't exist. In people's minds, they don't. They're there, but they don't exist in the mind. And certainly not in the heart. No conscientiousness of the fear of God or the law of God. And so if you could describe this generation in one word, it would be lawlessness on all levels and in all spheres. Why does the legislature make no sense? Why is there no justice in the judiciary? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes, and that is the only foundation for wisdom and knowledge. That's it. Otherwise, they're given over to depravity and futility. And this fear of the Lord is the law of the Lord, and the law of the Lord is the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> so over these last few weeks, what I have attempted to do is, is teach you that the Ten Commandments are our natural obligation to God and our natural obligation to each other. So you and I have a natural obligation to one another, and we have a natural obligation to God, and those natural obligations are revealed for us in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments reveal our natural obligations. Now, it's God's prerogative is the initiator of covenant and is the most powerful party within the covenantal agreements, it is God's prerogative 
to introduce positive law into the covenants. But contrary to positive law, the Ten Commandments are natural law. So there's two types of law. There's positive law and there's natural law. Natural law is the laws that are derived from the very constitution of reality. God has embedded natural law into our very existence, into the universe itself. And thus, from thus is derived the Ten Commandments, natural law. Positive law is law that is introduced outside and beyond natural law. And so God, it's his prerogative as he enters into covenant with us, is to, is to introduce positive law. Laws above and beyond the natural constitution of things. And so as he entered into covenant with Israel, he introduced the positive law of the ceremonies and the festivals and the land laws and the food laws. It was positive law. It taught them something, but it was positive law. It was not directly connected to the natural constitution of things. And as God enters into the covenant with the church, he introduces the ordinances and forms of church government, or form of church government, and so on. And this is positive law. It's positive law. Positive law comes and positive law goes, but natural law stays. It is abiding. It is eternal. It always has been and it always will be. It stays. It cannot change because it's rooted in the very character of God himself. Positive law and natural law. And Ten Commandments is the natural law. It's the moral law. It's the foundation for all things. It's the very constitution of reality. That's the Ten Commandments. The very constitution of reality. And so the, the Ten Commandments, because they are, it is the constitution of reality, it serves as the moral foundation of God's covenant with Israel, and it serves as God's moral foundation or as the moral foundation of God's covenant with the church. The Ten Commandments, the moral foundation. If we didn't have the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't need a Savior to save us from our sins. Because there would be no moral foundation that we had violated. There'd be no natural law that we violated. There would be no constitution of reality that we struck out against in our sins. The Ten Commandments indicate what that constitution of reality is. So if we didn't have natural law, we didn't have the moral law, we would, no, we would not need a Savior. But because God is unchanging, and His character is unchanging, and the natural law is a pouring out of His character, it's a revelation of character, this is reality, and it cannot change. Rooted in the very character of God. And all of our transgressions are transgressions against his character. And because we have transgressed his character, we need a savior. And so this underpins the covenant that God made with Old Covenant Israel, Old Testament Israel, and it underpins the covenant that God made with the church. And so far, what I've done is I've demonstrated the special place of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament is a distinct form of law. So there's a lot of people that will say that the distinction between the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial law and the civil laws is manufactured. It's an illusion. It's a fabrication. And in essence, they say that there is no distinction. Well, I've tried to demonstrate from the Old Testament that that claim is simply not true. 
There is a distinction. The distinction is clear. It's absolute. You see it within the text of the Old Testament. And then what I've tried to do is I try to demonstrate that the New Testament upholds the Ten Commandments as, a, as binding and authoritative yet. So that you see in how Jesus and the apostles exegete the Ten Commandments, you see that they appeal to them as a binding and authoritative source. And so I've attempted to do all of this in the last two sermons I preach. Well, today's going to be a little different. So trust I've I hope I've convinced you of the authority of the Ten Commandments. Today's going to be a little bit different. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to demonstrate how you apply the Ten Commandments consistently. How you apply them consistently. That's what I'm going to do today. So as I walk through the Ten Commandments and I eventually get to actually exegeting and applying the individual commandments... I want you to see that I'm not coming at the commandments with some type of arbitrary made-up standard as I apply them. I'm not shooting from the hip. And what you're going to see is that as, as I apply the Ten Commandments, there is a consistent interpretive method that I'm using in the application of them. So that there are several principles that I am employing to each individual commandment in order to get at the application of that commandment to all spheres of life, all aspects of human life. And we need to, if we want to learn how to apply God's word properly, we need to learn how to apply it properly. And that's what I'm going to offer you today. So hopefully you have the tools after today's sermon to say, okay, I know how to take one commandment and apply it properly. That's my hope today. How do you apply the Ten Commandments consistently. And in order to apply the Ten Commandments consistently, what I'm going to do is I am going to show you how other scriptures apply the Ten Commandments consistently. So I'm not making up this interpretive grid. I'm taking an interpretive grid that has been put in scripture for us. So I'm saying this is how the scriptures apply the Ten Commandments. And because the scriptures apply them this way, so can you. Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So if you want to know how to interpret and apply the Ten Commandments consistently, you just look and see how the Scriptures apply the Ten Commandments consistently. The Bible itself is applying them in, an in, in, a, in a very consistent way. How do you apply the Ten Commandments? And what I'll do this morning is I'm going to give you seven principles of application when it comes to the Ten Commandments. Seven principles of application. That I'm going to, I derive from Scripture. You should know that as I get into these seven principles of application, I'm, I'm relying heavily on the teaching of Edward Fisher and Thomas Watson. Now, I've read a whole bunch of books about the Ten Commandments, and I hope to put together a bibliography for you on my blog one of these days, if any of you want to dig a little deeper and read those books yourselves. But Edward Fisher and Thomas Watson's books, especially Edward Fisher, I'd commend his book to you, The Marrow of Modern Divinity. It's written in the 16th century, and it's actually a really accessible read, even though it's 500 years old, because it's a dialogue between a man named Evangelist, and he, and he goes back and forth with two people that are questioning him about the law of God. And he, he answers questions from a man named Antinomian, and Antinomian is the guy that 
has no regard for the law of God. And then he answers questions from a guy who's a legalist. And the legalist is the guy who's using the law of God improperly or inventing laws as he goes along. And so he tries to thread that needle of how to properly use the, the law of God. And so I'd commend that book to you, Edward Fisher's book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, and to a lesser extent, Thomas Watson's book on the Ten Commandments, which was written about 400 years ago and is quite good also. And so I'll quote both of those men in this sermon. I think what, one of the things that I'm doing is I look at the Ten Commandments is, and I come to it because there's been such poor teaching on the church for generations on this now, several generations, is I'm, is I'm taking that which is old and I'm making it new. This, this type of preaching would have been commonplace 100 years ago. Maybe not your grandparents' generation, but certainly your great-grandparents' generation, if they sat in a Protestant church, this is the type of preaching they'd be exposed to on a regular basis. In fact, typically in, in the Protestant churches, they would have had the two tables of the law, one on one side and one on the other side, distilling the law of God right there in front of the church so that the law of God is perceived as the moral foundation of all of our ethical decisions and the moral foundation of the new covenant in which we find ourselves, the law of God. So I'm not coming up with anything new today. I'm unearthing old teachings and making it new because these are teachings that for some reason have been disregarded for generations. Applying the Ten Commandments, seven principles to apply the Ten Commandments. Well, let's look at the first principle to apply the Ten Commandments. The first one is this. Each commandment contains a negative and positive commandment. Now, don't confuse that word positive with my use of positive law early on. I'm using it differently here. And you'll see evidently, it'll be self-evident how I'm using it. But each commandment contains a negative and positive commandment. And Edward Fisher explained this well where he said, where any evil is forbidden, the contrary good is commanded. Vice versa should be true too. Where any good is commanded, the contrary evil is forbidden. So that there's a flip side to each commandment. The commandments, a thou shalt not, attached to that commandment is a thou shalt if the commandment is thou shalt, then attached to that commandment is a thou shalt not. And so you ought to be able to apply the commandments in each way and that each commandment contains a negative and positive commandment. I'll give you examples of how this plays out. The second commandment forbids the worship of false gods and the false worship of the true God. So this is the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So this is the second commandment. And the second commandment forbids the worship of false gods and the false worship of the true gods. It's a thou shalt not. The thou shalt is you should worship the true God in a true way in the true way. So if the commandment itself is forbidding the worship of false gods and the false worship of the true God, then the commandment itself is commanding the true worship of the true God. Attached to each negative commandment is a positive commandment. So what should consume us in our quest to properly worship God is what is the proper way to worship God? Because you hear of all kinds of kooky things when it comes to worship services. And if you visit a lot of churches, you'll see a lot of kooky things. 
You know, some churches, if you go up, they'll have fog machines and strobe lights. And I've even seen some where guys are coming in, the, the pastor flies into the church on like a trapeze or something like that. No joke. Well, is that worship? Is that worship? Is that a properly ordered worship service? And quite often, it's simply a violation of the second commandment. Or some churches you go and people will be barking like dogs, claiming that's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Is that worship? There's people dancing around disorderly in church. Is that worship? The reality is, is the Scriptures tell us to worship God in an orderly way. And so much of what's passing for worship is disorderly and a violation of a second commandment. Okay? There's other churches where you can go in, and I've heard of them. They open their worship service not with the singing of God's praises, but with the playing of a pop culture song. I heard one church, they, they, play, they open the worship service with the song, Highway to Hell. Well, that's a violation of the second commandment and a sure sign that the church is on a highway to hell. Because the second commandment forbids the worship of the false god, of false gods and the false worship of the true God and therefore commands by implication the true worship of the true God. I'll give you another example of this. As we look at this, this is a very important point. The seventh commandment forbids adultery. Chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. It forbids adultery. So that's a negative commandment. That's a prohibition. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, what is the thou shalt do? What's the positive? Well, the positive is flipped to husbands should love their wives and wives should submit to their husbands. And the thou shalt not commit adultery is simply an application of husbands love your wives. Hey, guys, one of the ways that you love your wives is you don't commit adultery. But that's just one of them. There's a lot more to it. Okay? So with the negative command comes a positive. And the positive is, is love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Here, I'll give you another one here. This is important, I think. In our modern context, and I'm looking forward to preaching through this commandment, although it's a, it's a ways off yet, it's the ninth commandment. Verse 16, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. What does that forbid? It forbids slander and it forbids perjury. Slander and perjury, that's a negative command. So that thou shalt not bear false witness. Don't, don't commit perjury, don't slander. Well, what's the positive well, the positive command is that you should uphold and protect your neighbor's good reputation. That's the positive. So that when people want to whisper in your ear and tear down your neighbor, and if you want to entertain it, you're in violation of the ninth commandment because your duty as a Christian is to positively uphold the ninth commandment and protect your neighbor's good reputation. But if you want to run around and listen to nonsense and people's storytelling, and cause problems that way, then you're in violation of the ninth commandment. In fact, this is the commandment, I believe, that where we get our presumption of innocence in our judicial system. Why do we have the presumption of innocence in our judicial system? Because the law of the land is geared towards 
protecting our neighbor's good reputation. And we're not going to entertain any negative about our neighbor unless it is brought to us with substantial evidence. In other words, two or three witnesses who corroborate in their testimonies. And we will not listen to nonsense otherwise. And if we're going to be convinced that our neighbor's good name is worth damaging, it has to be beyond reasonable doubt is the evidence is brought to us. This is the ninth commandment. Each commandment contains a negative and a positive commandment. I hope you see that. Let's move on to the next principle. Number two, each commandment contains a negative and a positive. Number two, each commandment includes all other kinds of actions within the category. Within the category of the commandment, there are all other kinds of actions that fall with under that category, within the rubric of that category. So, for example, Edward Fisher said, he said, under one good action commanded or one evil action forbidden, all the same kind or nature are comprehended. Now, what do we mean by this? What do I mean by this? Well, the fifth commandment says, you're to honor your parents, your mother and father. Exodus 20, verse 12, that's the fifth commandment. Now, why is that the fifth commandment? That's because that is the commandment in bare-bones, natural reality, Garden of Eden. Your first relationship with authority is your parents. And that's the most important relationship of authority that you have is to your parents. However, there are other relationships with authority that fall within that category. So, for example, in 1 Peter 2, verse 17, the Apostle Peter says you're supposed to honor the emperor. The government's supposed to be honored. Or... In 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Elders who rule well in the church, especially those who labor in teaching, are to be recipients of double honor. Again, this is all based on the fifth commandment. However, also within that category are all the relationships within those categories. So, if the commandment is to honor your mother and father... So the commandment is to mothers and fathers to operate in an honorable way and not exasperate your children. So the goal of the mother and father, they'll do it imperfectly, should be to operate in the home in a way that makes it easy for the children to honor them. And so if the job of the citizen is to honor the emperor or honor the prime minister or honor our elected officials, our, our emperor or our prime minister or our king or our parliament should be operating in a way that engenders honor. It doesn't excuse our dishonor of them, but it does allow for us to point out their dishonorable actions without dishonoring them because they're dishonorable. And so in the church, Apostle Peter says the elders are not to be overbearing on the congregation. There are certain things within the congregation that the elders can speak to, but there are certain things that they can't. And so they ought to act in a way where it makes it a joy for the people of God. It's easy for the people of God to follow them. And so all of this falls under the rubric of the fifth commandment. 
Because the fifth commandment entails all relationships of authority and submission, and it, entails, it includes everyone within that relationship. It includes not just honoring mother and father, but also mother and father operating honorably. Or for example, here's another way that this happens in the Ten Commandments. Each commandment includes all other kinds of actions within the category. The seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery. And within the rubric of you shall not commit adultery are other forms of sexual immorality. But it just so happens that within the context of the Garden of Eden, adultery would have been the first instance or the first at least available instance of sexual sin. That's the first that would have been, if sexual sin would have occurred in the Garden of Eden, adultery would have been the first manifestation of it. Because remember that the only relationship that originally existed in the Garden of Eden was man and woman, husband and wife. And so any sexual activity outside of those norms would have been a violation of the marriage covenant. However, within the category of adultery, the rubric of that heading, that category, are all other kinds of sexual immorality, including sodomy, bestiality, pedophilia, cross-dressing, transgenderism. It forbids all forms of sexual expression outside of the sexual expression that is to occur between a husband and his wife within the confines of their marriage covenant. Everything else is off limits. And so each commandment includes all other kinds of actions within the category. That's number two. Number three. Number three. Each commandment reaches the heart and the affections. The heart and the affections. So that outward obedience is not the only goal, but it's actually the goal of the commandment is to alter the affections of the heart. So as to teach you to hate what you ought to hate and love what you ought to love. So Edward Fisher again says, it changes or it charges the affections to love the things that are to be loved and to hate the things that are to be hated. And I'll give you an example of this. The sixth commandment says you're not to murder. You shall not murder, Exodus 20, verse 13. Well, how does Jesus apply the sixth commandment? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, he says, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So that the prohibition against murder, if you want to get to the root of it in the heart, it's actually a prohibition against hatred of your brother. And you can even take it a step further where you go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, and Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that the prohibition against murder is not just a prohibition against murder. It's not just a prohibition against hatred. But the converse is true. It's a commandment to love. So that now what it's doing is it's properly ordering the affections of your heart. And Jesus says you're supposed to love your enemies. So if you're supposed to love your enemies, how much more are you supposed to love your, your brothers? What is it doing? The commandments are ordering the affections of your hearts so that there are certain things that you're supposed to love and there are certain things that you're supposed to hate and you learn what you're supposed to love from the commandments and you learn what you're supposed to hate from the commandments. The Apostle Paul taught us in Romans 12 verse 9 to abhor what is evil and some of you have in your translation 
rightly translated, hate what is evil. Hate it. So you should be hating what is evil in obedience to the commandments because they're ordering the affections of your hearts. In fact, Exodus 20, verse 16, the ninth commandment forbids slander and perjury. And 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6 says that we should rejoice in the truth. So what's that doing? It's not just forbidding perjury, right? But what is it doing? It's calling your heart to rejoice in the truth. I love the truth. We live in a generation that does what? It rejoices in lies and takes offense at the truth. That's our generation. They've put themselves in the place of God. They rejoice over lies and they take offense over truth. But the Ten Commandments calls you to hate lies and rejoice in the truth. Properly applied, the Ten Commandments rightfully order the affections of the human heart. And if you're going to properly interpret them, it's not just getting to external actions, but it's ordering the desires of your very heart. Teaching you what you should hate and teaching you what you should love. Of course, the applications to some of our issues in culture are very obvious. When people talk about, well, just love is love. No, no, no. If you truly wanted to obey God, you would hate that behavior. In fact, you would be disgusted by it. Because it's repulsive in the sight of God, it will be repulsive in your heart if your affections are going to be properly ordered according to God's word. And you're going to love righteousness and holiness and purity and truth. So each commandment reaches the heart and the affections so that you're not just your behavior should be conformed, but your actual affection should be conformed. That's number three. Number four, each commandment forbids being an accessory to a sin named. Each commandment forbids being accessory to sin named, being complicit in sin. So ultimately at the crucifixion of Christ, it was the soldiers who drove the nails into Christ's hands and feet. They were the murderers. They executed Christ. But Pilate was complicit in murder, too. He was guilty for his murder because he didn't save Christ, though he could have. And the false witnesses were complicit in murder. Why? Because their slander was used to have Christ crucified. So all of them were accessory to the sin of murder. Another great example of this in the Scriptures is, if you look at the commandment, Honor your mother and father, the fifth commandment. If um, you remember the old priest in the book of, I think it's 1 Samuel, the, the old fat priest he was, he was this is the way he was described, is Eli. And he was a jolly old fellow, it seemed. But Eli did not properly order his home. And so in disordering his home, his sons, the sons of the priest, started to take advantage of um, the people of God in terrible ways. And Eli had a respect for the Lord and he had a faith in the Lord, but he did not properly order his home. And so, therefore, he was accessory to his children's sin because he was not restraining their sin. And so, if you're not producing a home that is conducive to obedience to the law of the Lord, then you are accessory to the sin of your children. 
So you have to be careful what you let into your home, who your children hang out with, who's influencing them, what you're modeling before them, what school they're going to, who's educating them, lest you be accessory to their rebellion, as Eli was to the rebellion of his own children. And we see that come through. He's not held in honor, but dishonor because of his accessory to his son's sins. Each commandment forbids being accessory to the sin named. Okay? Number five. Number five. The love of God must incite our obedience. That's what stimulates and compels our obedience. This, of course, is the greatest commandment. Jesus taught us in Matthew 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all, or with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so this is what should stimulate or incite our obedience is the love of God. It's the greatest commandment. And, and here's something that you should keep in mind. Some people love the law of God because of what it does for them. It makes them feel good. It makes them you know, get praise of people in the church. Oh, I love to obey God's law because then people think I'm a really religious Christian. And so they love God and his law for what he can do for them. And Thomas Watson made the point. He said that whores love the payment more than the person. And hypocrites love the gift more than the giver. Hypocrites are religious whores, in other words, because they're using God for what he can give them, not because God is altogether lovely and wonderful. And so our love of God is what should motivate our obedience to his commandments. Thomas Watson said, we must love God for himself, for those shining perfections which are in him. And 1 Corinthians 13 upholds this because it says very clearly, as clear as day, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It is the love of God that must incent or incite and stimulate and compel our obedience to God's law. It must be our love of God himself that is the impetus for our obedience. So that obedience to God's law springs forth from a heart that loves him. That's the fifth interpretive key as we look at the law of God. The sixth is like it. And the sixth is this. Well, the love of God must incite our obedience. The sixth is the glory of God must be the goal of our obedience. The glory of God must be the goal of our obedience. So that the hypocrites did things to be noticed, but we act so that God will be noticed. The hypocrites, what did Jesus condemn them for? Because they prayed to be noticed for their own glory. But what must we do? We must act so that God will be noticed and glorified. He rewards the, the righteous deeds that are done in secret. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, so that the glory of God must be the goal of our obedience. 
That's the sixth principle that we have. The seventh one is this. And finally, the seventh principle that we have for interpreting the law of God is that our obedience is important. So is the manner of our obedience. Is our obedience as important? So is the manner of our obedience. Edward Fisher rightly said, he said, we must be careful to do all our actions after a right manner, humbly, reverently, willingly, and zealously. The manner of our obedience is important just as our obedience is because the manner of our obedience is obedience. So the manner must be right if obedience must be right. And all of those characteristics, humility, reverence, willingness, and zeal. Jesus, what did he do? He laid down his life willingly. He had zeal for his father's house. The zeal of his father's house consumed him. And so these are the characteristics that should, I guess you could say, showcase our obedience. Our obedience should be infused with humility, reverence, willingness, and zeal. And so there's seven necessary ways to apply the law. And I think as I go through this series, what you're going to see is that this is what I do to apply it. Each one of these are going to be employed to each one of the commandments to apply them. And let me just close with the reading of a few scriptures. The reading of a few scriptures. Psalm 119 verse 14 says, In the ways of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Does this describe your heart? Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I behold wondrous things out of your law. Is that your prayer? Psalm 119, verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Psalm 119, verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandment for I delight in it. Psalm 119, verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. This, this doesn't describe our generation, but this describes the converted heart, the heart that is tender towards the rules of God, the heart that's broken and humble and zealous for the rules of God. Psalm 119, verse 72 the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Psalm 119, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. This is precious. Psalm 119, verse 143, trouble and anguish have found me out but your commandments are my delight. In the middle of trouble and anguish, what is your delight? Is it the law? And Psalm 119, verse 163 says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. John Chrysostom, the church father, compared the scriptures to a garden with the moral law as the chief flower, and then he compared the scriptures to a banquet with the moral law as the chief dish. Thomas Watson said, the Ten Commandments are a chain of pearls to adorn us. They are our treasury to enrich us. They are more precious than lands of spices or rocks of diamonds. 
Oh, that this would be our hearts. Tender and loving towards God's law as it should be. Do you love God's law? Is it your treasure? Because this is meekness wrought in the heart of the believer, which makes the law this sweet to the palate. This is conversion of the soul. This is what happens when your heart's converted. You have this level of love for God's law. And I, and I fear that today people are coming to church because they see how depraved and ugly the world is and they just don't want that. But if your heart's truly converted, it's not just being repulsed by the world, it's, being in, it's loving God's law. It's treasuring it. It's delighting in it. You want it more than anything because this is delightful to you. This is good. Do you possess this delight, that blissful wonder at the depths and benefits of God's law? No, look, God's law is not Christ. It won't save you. God's law can't atone for your sins. God's law can't forgive you. God's law can't regenerate you. God's law cannot even penetrate your heart so that you love his law, but the law of God will lead you to the one who does. And this is why you should love God's law, if for any reason. Because the law of God will lead you to the Christ who pardons you. When you're confronted with the law of God, you're confronted with its perfection, and you're confronted with your own sins, and what does this do but drive you to the mercy of Christ? How many felt just a little bit of conviction this morning? How many felt a lot? Well, it'd be a real shame if we just left it at the conviction. But what that conviction is intended to do is drive you to the one who can heal the wound that God's law has inflicted upon your soul. And that's Christ. So how could you not love the law if this is the instrument of God to lead you to the one who does forgive you and who does regenerate you and who does change your heart and give you full pardon? For the born-again believer, the one who was born of God, the law is our great treasure. Let's have prayer together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word and grateful for your law. Oh, write it upon our hearts and teach us to love and cherish it and obey all your ways. In Christ's name, amen.